Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday and finally sunny edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, DEI. Employers are all abuzz about implementing diversity, equity, and inclusion training and initiatives. But what happens when there is an overload of information? Can it lead to confusion and even resistance? Also, we conclude our one-on-one conversations with candidates running for Atlanta City Council President. Longtime labor activist Sam Manuel joins me. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, this Proposed district boundaries of congressional seats aren't balanced. Now, that's according to the watchdog group Fair District Georgia. Now, right now, there's just one redistricting map made public so far. It's from a Republican-led state Senate committee and redraws Georgia's 14 congressional districts in the Republicans' favor. That's also according to the group Fair Districts. The proposed map would reduce the number of black majority districts in Georgia from four to three, says the group's Ken Lawler. That's because the South Georgia district held by Democrat Sanford Bishop would change. The issue really is what's happened to Congressional District 2, which was a black majority district, is now slightly below 50 percent for black majority voting. Lawler says while other minorities in the district may still make it a Democratic-held seat, he says there could be a legal challenge to the map for reducing black voting strength. Now, there will be other maps drawn by the state house and voted on during a special legislative session next month. In other news, lawyers for two of the three men accused of shooting and killing Ahmaud Arbery are asking a Georgia Superior Court judge to exclude a piece of evidence in the murder trial. Travis and Greg McMichael's lawyers are asking the judge to prevent the jury from seeing photos of a vanity plate on Travis's pickup truck featuring the former Georgia state flag, which includes an image of the Confederate battle emblem. Now, the defense argues the photos aren't relevant and would unfairly influence the jury. Prosecutors say McMichael purchased a truck weeks before the shooting and chose to display the license plate. Jury selection begins October 18th. The judge previously ruled that the defense wouldn't be allowed to bring up Arbery's criminal record or mental health history. Officials with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says they're completing lead cleanup on about five properties on Atlanta's west side. The agency has identified some 2,100 properties in the English Avenue and Vine City neighborhoods with lead levels above 400 parts per million. Now, what does that mean? Chuck Berry with the EPA explains. If your property has a lead level over 400 uh, and there are children uh, living on the property, then it would be a a pretty quick turnaround for us to get out there and start uh, removing the contaminated soil. Barry says other properties like those that sit vacant could wait months before cleanup begins. 
the EPA is in the process of putting the project on a national priorities list, which would dedicate more money to the cleanup. And finally, some sports news. First, the Atlanta Braves start the playoffs on the road this afternoon up in up north, taking on the Milwaukee Brewers. The Braves finished the regular season as one of the hottest teams in the Major League Baseball. Now, games one and two are in Milwaukee before the series comes back to Atlanta Monday for game three. Now, whichever team wins will face the winner of the San Francisco Giants L.A. Dodgers series in which my Cardinals did not win. First pitch is today, just after 4.30. And while having breakfast on Sunday, you can watch the Falcons from London as they play the New York Jets. Now, the team will be without receiver Calvin Ridley. In a statement, Falcons officials say Ridley will stay home due to a, quote, personal matter. Go Falcons, go Braves. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It is one of the most popular topics presented in TED Talks and podcasts. I'm here to try to convince you to stop talking about diversity. (laughs) Just stop. Just stop. So I want to convince you to stop talking about diversity because one... The word is misguiding us, and two, we don't actually care about it. Our brains don't care about it. What if we worked in diverse and inclusive environments that we had something to do something with? And since we spend one-third of our lives at work, what if we did that with people who didn't look like us? I think the world would be a totally different place outside of work. Everyone is is asking for DEI training sessions and, you know, so you had a session, so you had a seminar or a training, a series. Now what? I think it's really important, even before you have a, a series of trainings, to be clear why. Where does it fit in your larger DEI plan? Who is it targeting? I know so often organizations just jump to doing a training because it makes them feel like they're doing something and it can show that they're doing something, but sometimes it's just minutia. I want you to really have a clear sense of why and how does it fit. That was in order Paloma Medina and Janet Stovall in their TED Talks giving presentations about DEI. And then that was Dr. Kara Banks from her podcast, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Now, it's not a new concept, but after last year, more and more workplace environments are taking steps to be more diverse, equitable, and inclusive for all of their employees, no matter their race, gender, ethnicity, or sexual preference. And so companies offer DEI training sessions and programs. Here's a question. What happens when there's an overload of information that could possibly lead to confusion and or resistance. Stephen Paskoff is the president and CEO of the training company Eli, also known as Employment's Learning Innovations. He joins me now to talk more about this and how to discuss DEI and can it either result in, can it cause results or resistance in a workplace? And he's been on this program before. Stephen, welcome back. Thank you, Rose. Thanks for having me. We just played some clips there. I want to get your thoughts. Uh, tell me what you think about what you heard. The issue of diversity, as you said, is not new. I frankly see it as an extension of the civil rights movement, which is part of our culture and our heritage for many, many years. The issue of having different people of different backgrounds in your workplaces, because we're talking about workplaces, Mm -hmm. should be seen as a business initiative, a business initiative that helps drive results of two kinds. 
One is the result of getting the very best talent wherever you can find them, whatever they look, whatever their background. Why? That helps improve results. And the second is getting those folks to contribute and work together. We see it as an equation, Rose. The idea is, and this is an extension of what civil rights laws have attempted to do since their passage in the 60s, is to build workplaces where organizations hire people based on, as was said, the content of their character or their skills and qualifications and attributes, and then brings them into their workplace where they can do their best work as members of the team, contributing individually and as members of a group at their fullest potential. And the beauty of it is, if you can look at it that way, it can help foster the organizational's best result, organization's best results and get people to work together collaboratively, collegially, and as peers. So let's back up a moment and start with this then. What do employers, companies get wrong or tend to have the wrong concept about the effectiveness of, let's start with DEI training before we even get to the initiatives. Let's start with DEI training. Number one, they don't typically link it to their organization's mission, vision, and values. It's treated quite often as a separate topic that doesn't establish a clear connection to business results. Number two, it's sometimes, I'll say one and done, and organizations call it a journey, but one and done is really a day trip. And that's all you're doing is a day trip. It's not going to accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. Quite often, they perpetuate stereotypes, but stereotypes of their choosing. But the problem is it tells folks, well, if we can stereotype, why can't you? And it doesn't give people concrete rules of behaviors in terms of how to behave to work together that apply to everyone and how to talk about and work out issues. And finally, Rose, it doesn't continue. What you have to have is see diversity training as a journey, which is integrated into businesses like safety and quality, market excellence, market share, because that's what it really is intended to help you do, get the very best and best results. So then if it just stops after you have everyone, after you mandate everyone watch the video or everyone attend the guest speaker in the auditorium, then odds are any DEI initiatives probably won't be successful anyway because you're stopping there with, oh, we, we gave our employees training. We're fine. Well, they're not fine. I agree with you on that. <laughs> they're the opposite of fine because here's what people don't talk about, I think, as much as they should. The behaviors that we're trying to address are ingrained social patterns of behavior and interaction, some of them conscious, some of them we may not even be aware of. That's true for everybody. But if you don't recognize that you're dealing with a problem that requires behavior and habit change, then one and done doesn't work. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, lose weight. You don't, unless you make a plan to do it, if it's important to you, and there's some consequences, positive or negative, for doing it. And that's all part of what has to accomplish to really get to the fabric of the organization, its own culture, and treat people like citizens of an organization with rights of citizenship in terms of how they're engaged, treated, managed, and advanced. Well, let me ask you this then. So employers should not go into this, and I want to stick with DEI training for a second. Employers should not go into this with the expectation that they're going to achieve a specific goal because they haven't really identified what that goal is, is what you're saying. 
They haven't achieved the goal. And quite often it's looked at, we're going to do it and we're done. This is a continuous journey. We've got wonderful utilities in the state of Georgia and throughout the Southeast. And you probably know who I'm talking about. And when you go into their offices, there's a brief meeting and talk about safety. Every time you go there, it's just part of the culture. You expect it. They talk about safety in teams. The point is we should be talking about how we treat one another from the top of the organization all the way to entry level leaders, team members and employees. Because if you say it affects results, then why wouldn't you consider it as something that you consider all the time? That's what's really needed. It's not just you go to a training, learn it and you're done. Well, then what is that next step? What do you advise companies? Okay, we've we've everyone has watched the training. We brought in this fabulous speaker. Where do we go next, Mr. Paskoff? Ms. Scott, we would talk about it every week in workaday conversations briefly. Every week? Be, well, look, you have meetings on sales and quality and safety yeah. and results. Take a couple of minutes and talk about, hey, how are we treating one another? And how can we do better? And make it a subject that's not something you hear about once a year. And, well, we're going to go to the training. We're done, I guess. Yeah, you are. Treat it like other business issues, because if you say it is related to your getting the best talent and then realizing the investment with the best results, why wouldn't you talk about this huge investment and treat people to get the most from them and from the organization? We've had conversations before and you've talked about and you just recently wrote to me, you said sometimes these initiatives generate resentment and division rather than acceptance and meaningful organizational change. And someone listening says, well, if you want to force us to have every week talk about how we treat folks, could that lead to some resentment? And they're saying, look, we're here to do a job. As long as I treat people with respect, do you have to check in with us every week? The trainings that I'm talking about are not like that at all. Can mm -hmm. I give you a couple of examples? Well, that's why you're one's here, Stephen. All right. Well, one's as recent as this morning's New York Times, when there's an article quoted with in a diversity training, the subject is what's up with white women. That is a stereotype. And that is bound to get some folks to say, why are you stereotyping me uh -huh. in Atlanta? One of the companies that uh, was connected, allegedly, to training that said, for example, how to be less white. Uh -huh. Someone can think I'm born this way. I want to be a good person. I can't help how I was born. But some trainings, what they will do would be to stigmatize one group and that group is a part of the group that's got to buy into this and see that this is fair and consistent for everyone. Let me give you one example, Rose. Mm -hmm. It really Please. stuck with me. Years ago in my native town of Pittsburgh, where I'm from, I was teaching a class and it was dealing with discrimination and harassment. And I was talking about why sexual jokes don't belong. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget this. Um, a senior manager at the time, this was a long time ago, said to me, wait a minute people are too sensitive. We should be able to kid about anything we want. Why, why, why are these people so sensitive about sexual comments? I said, well, let me ask you a question, if I may. Would it be okay, who's visibly significantly older than I was at the time, I said, can I kid you about your age? He said, no, that would bother me. I said, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. You should have consistent standards of how people are treated as a baseline in terms of daily behavior. That's what trainings need to do reinforce those standards. And then if I say something to you or you say something to me and it's offensive or a problem or misunderstood, 
we should have an environment where I can say, hey, Rose, something you said bothered me. Can we talk about it? And vice versa. And we move on. That's the ideal. How can employers, how do they gauge whether or not the management team or the directors of a department, are they the ones that should be leading, the, for example, these weekly or, you know, bi-monthly check-ins? Because also, for some people, and we talk about safe spaces, um, I may not feel comfortable in a space with my director, or I might be the only person of color or the only openly LGBTQ individual in a particular department. So I may not feel comfortable with this person leading something like this. Are you suggesting also that they mix it up? Or how does a, a, a company go about doing this? First off, there is a structural issue that's got to be thought about. The training is part of a structural initiative. You've got mm -hmm. to start with senior leaders saying, we are committed to treating everyone a certain way, fairly and professionally, looking at talent objectively. That's who we are. They've got to do it. They've got to lead it. They've got to believe it. That's one part of commitment. Second, they've got to have communication, not just talking about it once a year, putting out a video that was beautifully produced and saying, I'm done. Mm -hmm. It needs to come up and just like they talk about safety. Years ago, I went out west to a company that was really known for its production of, uh, let's just say production. Mm -hmm. And the CEO, I heard him talk passionately about their commitment to production and safety in the environment. And then he said, now I'm gonna to talk to you, everybody. I've got a message to read from people in HR about how we treat one another. It, 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 that's not communication that's effective. You've gotta have policies, trainings, and the like that's content. There have to be consequences. You recognize people who perform really well in terms of how they treat people, and you deal with problems of behavior, discipline, or separation when they don't fulfill that. And finally, this is something that's got to be continuous, and mm -hmm. it's got to be measured. Organizations need to have certain metrics that they look at in terms of performance, not just hiring profiles. Getting people into a job is a step but it's not taking you to the top of the mountain, so to speak, where people are treated, integrated into the group across a range of characteristics. You mentioned one other thing, Rose. What do you do if you feel uncomfortable speaking up? Mm -hmm. Well, when I'm talking about workaday conversations, and you also have to have an environment where, look, if you don't feel comfortable talking to me, you can talk to another leader. You can talk to somebody in HR, but let's talk about it. Let's get it out there. And if I'm making mistakes in this area, I want to learn and let's fix it. If you're just no, go ahead, finish up. That's it. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Stephen Paskoff. He's the president and CEO of the training company Eli. We're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace, and how companies can achieve results instead of resistance. I have an email here from a listener who says, "I think sometimes these companies just do this so that they won't get sued, and they can say, well, we had DEI training.'" So it's, it's impossible that we have a, a workplace that's not tolerant of others. What do you make of that? Well, with all due respect, I, I think that anyone relying on that to be exonerated, mm -hmm. it's a big mistake. I assure you, for example, that NBC had training. I assure they're still remembered for what happened with Matt Lauer and others. Mm -hmm. Having training is critical, but the training standing alone without attachment, it's good to say you did it. It's better than not but it doesn't change the dynamics that we're talking about alone. Stephen, let me ask you, so how do you identify and demographic wise? You are- How do I do? 
How you how you how do you how do you identify? I don't want to project anything on you. How do I identify? Yeah, how do you identify? In terms of race well, and ethnicity. Well, I'm not a wasp, I'll tell you that. Yes, I'm white. Mm-hmm. I'm not Anglo-Saxon. I'm not Protestant. I am a, uh, in terms of ethnicity, uh, an Eastern European Jewish person. Okay. But oh. I'm an American. Gotcha. And when I work in my company, I'm a citizen of my company. And I should have certain rights as a citizen of my company. And that's what we can control in the workplace. We're all citizens of the company, no matter what we look like, Absolutely. no matter where we're from. We're now, citizens entitled to those rights. Do people ever ask you, what's a white guy doing talking about DEI? I'm just curious. You and I have had many conversations. We respect each other. Have you ever, I've never asked you that. I was always curious. Do people ever approach you with that? Well, I was talking about this, Rose, before DE and I was the term. I mm-hmm. was a civil rights trial attorney and before that an investigator. I started this business 35 years ago after defending employers. So I've been committed to fairness and the principles of equal employment opportunity before this terminology was used. Absolutely, you have. I know your I know your background, your expertise, because at least to this question, and it's a question I had, and a, a listener emailed me this, how does an employer know whom or what entity to contract with to use for DEI? Because look, everybody all of a sudden, like with the coronavirus, everybody's an, an epidemiologist, and everybody's now is an expert on DEI initiatives. You know, what do you tell employees? How do you know you've got the right person? What do you look for? I would, I think before you look for training, you've got to have some sense of what is it that I am trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. And that will lead you in the right direction. If you are trying to look at this in a manner that embraces the law, diversity, safety, civility, respect, inclusion, link it to values, for example, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. There are other organizations that focus on single subjects. That's not our approach. I think you as an organization have got to say, why is this important to our organization? Why is this going to make us a better organization? And what are we looking for in the long term? Then you go from there. Should employers also, before they bring in the DEI training and start implementing the initiatives afterwards, do they need to in a sense, I guess, get a temperature of what their employees think? Is there a way to that you suggest to govern that? Do you have it? Do you send out a survey that's anonymous? Uh, you know, because maybe that's important to see how people feel. Maybe people don't feel like there's an issue. Rose, we are living in challenging times. Mm-hmm. Emotions, feelings, resentments that span an entire spectrum of our population. Everybody are more intense than I've ever seen them since I started doing this in the Mm seventies. I think it is important and it can be painful, but it is important to get a sense of your temperature. And I think that is where you start talking to people and getting an understanding of where you are and then figuring out, how to address it in the context of what is going on in your own organization. As we wrap up, you mentioned this, and I believe in the very first question I asked you, you said this is a part of a journey. This is not a one-stop, you're done, and that's it. If there is one lasting nugget that you want to leave with folks about all of this, what is it? 
Ultimately, and if I can, Rose, I'm going to give you a case example of this. Ultimately, this is about your organizational results. That's the most effective way to start and bring everybody together. Just last week, I was working with a government agency responsible for preventing nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare wherever it occurs. They're looking for the very best talent. They can find them anywhere. And I said to them, here's your responsibility. Does this make sense to you? What do you think? And it really caught their attention. Mm -hmm. I said, you want to have the best people. You can find them and look for them. But unless you figure out a way that they feel comfortable speaking up and being part of your team, you're not going to accomplish your results. Someone might say, I don't want to speak to Rose or Scott. Maybe they'll make fun of me. Maybe they'll diminish me. Maybe they're just not going to listen. Oh, maybe I'll keep it to myself. What are the consequences? That's an extreme example. But the whole thing I'd say is look at what the best talent and where they are, and then how you're going to bring them in into your group so they really feel connected to contribute individually and as members of a team. That, to me, is most critical. Something else that stands out for me, you write, results must be continually measured and actions adjusted as new challenges arise. Rose, we have a slide. I wish I could show it to you. We designed it three years ago. It said the things happen in the world. This is three years ago. So we're talking about 2018. Mm -hmm. Something could happen in the world. Something could happen politically. Something could happen nationally that could affect us. Those things are in our present. Organizations have got to be prepared to be flexible, adjust, make messages that fit, but constantly be aligned with their vision, mission, and values to deal with the present and the unexpected future. Stephen Paskoff, the president and CEO of the training company Eli, also known as Employment Learning Innovations. Always a good conversation when you're on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Tuesday, November 2nd is weeks away. Of course, that is Election Day, which includes the city of Atlanta general elections and the big race, the mayoral one, of course, but also city council, Atlanta Board of Education seats and Atlanta City Council president. Today, we conclude our one-on-one conversations with those candidates vying to become Atlanta's next city council president in no particular order, but solely based on the scheduling availability of the candidates. And joining me now is Sam Manuel. Mr. Manuel, welcome to the program. Thank you. You are a Georgia native, correct? Yes, I am. Born and raised Columbus, Georgia. Yeah, and you have an extensive background working in labor reform movements. I want to ask you and begin there. 
How do you see that work, your your past work and that, or current work and that, being able to help you with becoming, uh, being an effective Atlanta City Council president? Well, I am the uh, Socialist Workers endorsed candidate for president of City Council. And using this campaign to talk to working people door to door and uh, on strike picket lines and in factories about the need for us to break, not only with the two main capitalist parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, but with their view of politics. And that's where the labor movement Mm -hmm. and broader social struggles come into play because that's what real politics is and that's where real change takes place. well, as you know, this election is is uh, nonpartisan in a sense. But I want to ask, um, how are you getting that message to voters, though? How do you bring that to get someone to say, you know what? I think Sam Manuel is a person we should elect as president of the Atlanta City Council. Well, I'd like to thank you and your show in uh, contributing to that, um, uh, giving us the uh, platform to the to be able to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've done it mainly uh, in the workplace. Um, I work at Walmart as a um, dairy stalker, uh, talking to co-workers about uh, this on the job. And of course, the question of unionization and fight for a union mm-hmm. is very important uh, there. Uh, I have spent uh, most of this campaign since we launched it back in February uh, <clears throat> going door to door, talking to people and getting to every um, struggle by unions that I can, not only in Georgia, but across the South. Um, I've been to uh, Birmingham, Alabama area to walk the lines with uh, mine workers uh, at Warrior Met, who I believe are going into their ninth month of, of their strike to, to, to get a real contract there, mm-hmm. not only in terms of wages, uh, but also health and working conditions. Uh, shortly after this interview, I will be leaving to go to Memphis, Tennessee, uh, city of the 1968 sanitation worker strike, mm-hmm. where Kellogg workers, bakery workers, have now gone on strike against the horrendous conditions often that are being imposed on workers in the name of the pandemic. Uh, the boss is using this to force people to work Uh, 12-hour shifts as a regular thing to work seven days a week um, to make up for the labor shortage that Mm -hmm. they face right now. Um, That's the way that I've been getting this message out, and uh, we've gotten the response. Of course, as you know, uh, the Atlanta City Council president, that is a form of leadership. But you also know within the city of Atlanta, you know, the government, the the way the, the form of government is for Atlanta, it does heavily favor the mayor. So how do you see, if elected, you being able to bring some balance to that? And also, the city council is going to change. We know that. Be, with someone who doesn't have experience in an elected office, how do you see being able to balance bridging that with the mayor or whoever's going to be mayor? And then also get, leading to some, as you see it, policy changes. Um, well, that gets back to the other point that I raised, a break not only with these capitalist parties, but with their system and their concept of what politics are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, of course, am open to working with anyone, but I doubt the odds are very high that 
I'll have a very cooperative relationship with the uh, mayor. The, the structure of the governments, whether it's in this city or anywhere else, it's not so much that they favor the mayor, but it favors the wealthy and it favors their interest and their rule. Uh, and that is what the, the, the fight, for example, for a decent wage. Mm -hmm. um, many liberal politicians, the socialist wing of the Democratic Party, are all pushing the idea of a $15 minimum wage. Okay, but how do you really fight that and fight for that and how do you get it? You don't get it by fighting to get legislation. We have never won anything. We get the legislation after we organize a fight that shows that we are big enough, strong enough and united enough to force them to make the concession. Uh, that's been true for everything, including the founding of the unions themselves. Mm -hmm. So if I'm elected president of the city council, that's what the council will have to look forward to. Someone who will be focusing on organizing workers in the city to bring their weight, their voice to bear in everything that we do. Mr. Manuel, we've also heard a lot about public safety, affordable housing, large scale development as top concerns for residents. Other than obviously the, the labor issue here, what issues do you see are the top three for Atlanta right now? Um, well, the, the, the issues that I'd like to, to, to put forward are the issues that face working people. There, there are a lot of things. Well, but public safety, but public safety, affordable housing yes, yes. and I, large scale I, development, they they affect they they definitely affect the folks that you've been fighting for and advocating for for so many years of your life, though. Yes, that's true. But mm -hmm. the point I'm trying to get at is they affect people in the city differently. True. Um, crime affects, uh, you know, people who live in gated communities with private security forces differently than it than it affects uh, people living in working class neighborhoods. Um, on crime, I'll just take a couple of them. On crime, for example, um, I like to talk in this campaign about the crime that none of my opponents seem to want to mention. Mm -hmm. And that's a crime that's perpetrated against working people every day at work. Uh, starting with the fact that we come in to work, we produce all of the wealth. And at the end of the day, the bosses, simply because they have a piece of paper that says they own this company, uh, take the majority, takes really all of the wealth that's produced and give us back, uh, which they call profits, and they give us back a small amount, which is called uh, a, supposedly a living, a living wage. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes union organization and, and workers being organized to fight uh, against that. Um, and, you know, 5,000 workers in this country, 5,300, lost their lives last year. And there's no big hue and cry about that. And that was, these, these are all preventable deaths, uh, deaths that were driven by the profit drives of, of the bosses. They're, they're driving their thirst for profits. Mm -hmm. Another nearly 3 million workers were injured on the job. And any worker who's worked on a job and gone through the so-called safety programs of these companies know that it's just a joke. They're just going through the motion to, to, to fill in, the, you know, required paperwork on this, but no real input. It takes a union 
an organized union movement in the workplace to really enforce safety measures. If you just join us, I'm joined by Sam Manuel. He's a longtime labor activist, and we're talking about why he's running to be the next Atlanta City Council president. And Mr. Manuel, I do want to talk about affordable housing. I understand what you were talking about, public, your view of public safety in, in the workforce. But affordable housing is a major issue. And the, again, the very folks that you've been advocating for and, and, and working for in terms of rights, affordable housing is a priority on their list. What is Atlanta getting right? And maybe what is Atlanta not doing enough of as it relates to affordable housing? Atlanta isn't doing anything on affordable housing um, and probably can't do anything on affordable housing. Housing is another commodity in capitalist society, which is produced by companies, big real estate um, and construction companies. Mm -hmm. And they do this not for, they build houses, not necessarily for people to live in. Yes, people end up buying houses, they live in houses, but houses, the real reason they are built is to make profit and to maximize the largest amount of profits uh, that they can get. Um, I, when I campaigned door to door, walking around in, in uh, Atlanta neighborhoods, mm -hmm. I and campaign supporters are struck by how many rundown, dilapidated, abandoned houses that there are uh, in Atlanta. Um, we need a federally funded uh, program of construction that can, can begin to put, first of all, put thousands of people to work, uh, being trained and learning and learning how to do the, the jobs that are necessary to, to build these houses mm -hmm. that, that people can live in. Uh, and that can be very easily done. I, I first came across this when I was a reporter for the militant newspaper, a socialist newspaper in New Orleans uh, after Katrina and just going around the city and I, met one guy who was a, a skilled construction worker. Uh, it was at what was left of his home. The home was destroyed. He looked at me, he said, you know, if they would just simply give me the equipment and the materials. At the time, the city was bringing in construction workers from all over the country, many of them being brought in by contracting outfits. They were paying substandard wages where thousands of workers like this guy could have been put to work in New Orleans back during Katrina and probably actually today after the most recent storm, mm -hmm. doing exactly that. And that's a big thing that we could do toward affordable housing, but that means building houses for people to live in, not houses where we're going to make profits off of them. And speaking of that, I, I recently moderated a mayoral forum on best practices to address the city's unsheltered and homeless population. Let's talk about solutions there. How do you see, where would you begin if you are Atlanta City Council president, what do you want to look at as it relates to how Atlanta needs to do? I'm assuming you think it's not doing a good job, but needs to do a better job of addressing our unsheltered and homeless population. Well, it's outrageous that there are people that are unsheltered mm -hmm. and homeless, uh, given the massive resources um, available in, uh, in this country. Um, I, I, I've had the opportunity, um, I consider myself a revolutionary, a revolutionary socialist. I've been a supporter of the socialist revolution since I was a youth mm -hmm. um, and in Cuba. And I'm always struck when I go there that you don't see this. Um, 
homelessness. Many Cubans that you talk to, they, they have no idea what you're even talking about. It's because the entire population is mobilized to ensure that adequate facilities for people to live in take place there. Uh, and that's not to mention the things that they've done economically to really make housing housing affordable. This is a problem that can very easily be solved, but it can't be solved within the framework. But, but in Cuba, of the, they of the commodity market. In Cuba, they have a lot of housing subsidies for folks. Correct? Am, am I wrong? Am I off base on that? Well, often Americans who go there, they they say that, but mm-hmm. simply the, the original rent law, for example, after the revolution mm-hmm. uh, in Cuba, it's it's the law provides that rent can not be more than 10% of the main income earner in the family. Sure. You know, so somebody's earning $300, there may be two or three other people in the family earning money, uh, but you're looking at $30 rent. The other thing they did was nationalize the housing stock, mm-hmm. taking housing out of the commodity market. So you're, and I meet many Cubans, I have Cuban friends here, um, I'm involved with the with uh, in a movement to oppose the ongoing U.S. Bar- uh, embargo against mm-hmm. Cuba, and they point out that even though they're not necessarily they live here now, they're not necessarily supporters of the revolution. But one of them, a friend of mine, his mother was given a home uh, by the by the revolution. She cannot be removed from that home by anyone. And you see something like that could work here in Atlanta. Not, not without a revolution. Yeah, I was, uh, was going to ask you how you like, achieve that. I was, I was going to ask you how like, do you achieve that, Mr. Daniel. <laughs> Let me get your thoughts on this. It's, it's like, it's one last thing. It's sure. like the young people <clears throat> that I've gone with who go down, many of them study to be doctors here in the U.S. and they see the Cuban healthcare system. And they say, oh, if we could just come back and do what they do. And many of those young people, they come back and they, they, they're more committed to the reasons that they decided to become doctors, to, mm-hmm. that is to help heal people. Um, but Che Guevara, uh, one of the central leaders of the revolution, once gave a speech and he was asked by some medical students in Cuba early in the revolution, mm-hmm. you know, how can we have revolutionary doctors? And Che answered, he said, well, you can only have in order to have revolutionary doctrines, you must first have revolutionaries. I know that very well. Uh, begin, Let me ask you this, though, Mr. Manu, because I, I do want to get I do want to be fair and make sure I ask every candidate at least the same questions. And, and as you know, mm-hmm. there is a group advocating for you know the Buckhead neighborhood to form its own city. Uh, you support that movement? Uh, it's the kind of movement that I'm neither for nor against because it doesn't really it. It will change nothing for working people in Buckhead or Atlanta uh, if the system remains the same. Um, what do you mean? It, it, it may. Well, if the profit system is the system that we're living under, uh, that, 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 which everything is really decided on the basis of um, of the values of this dog-eat-dog system, mm-hmm. uh, that is a commodity market, whether it's food, whether it's housing, whether it's in education, et cetera. Yes, because of already established class differences that exist, and we know them well, between an area like Buckhead and an area like Atlanta, things are going to be what they will be. Mm-hmm. But they don't fundamentally change. It just means that the wealthy in Buckhead or the wealthy in Atlanta have a certain 
way that they will now have to do things, but it doesn't change anything fundamentally for us. I would say one other well, thing. Well, I, I, I think someone might argue that if Buckhead were to form its own city, it would it would really impact the Atlanta Public Schools. Uh, it, it would have a, a, a long list of, of adverse, just for some people would argue, that the, it is not in the best interest of, it could be in the best interest for Buckhead, but it may not be in the best interest of kids in, in, in APS, where there is a 79% of, of kids who their households are at the poverty line. So can you understand that viewpoint? Well, to the, to the extent, to the extent that, it divide, that it divides working people, both in Atlanta and in Buckhead, mm-hmm. that's, that's, been, that's been the thing I've been trying to get at, you know, commentators and it's the way that we talk we talk about atlanta but there is no atlanta um there's the atlanta of the wealthy and there's the atlanta of working people and and those you know without jobs and um those interests and how society is organized gets reflected differently for working people we have to begin to start looking at to ourselves and beginning to organize amongst ourselves. To, the, the fight for, for, for real education will not change simply because people in Buckhead left. Sure. It will still be, it is bad now and it will still be bad. Finally, Mr. Manuel, let me ask you this because we touched on the role of the city council president and through your lens and everyone's been getting this question, what type of leader are you? Uh, well, hopefully one that has uh, learned from working with other working people. Um, I decided to join the revolutionary movement actually here in Atlanta when I was a student. Uh, then I think at Georgia State University and there was a strike of sanitation workers mm-hmm. in Atlanta. It was the first real, I was actually still a college student, not a worker <laughs> at all or involved in any labor movement. Um, but the the capacity of workers when in a fight, when there is a cause uh, to rise above the stereotypes that are often presented about how we conduct ourselves, uh, which anyone who has studied the civil rights movement knows for sure mm-hmm. what that is, those types of values. Those are the things I hope I have learned and uh, developed right. the capacity to I hear you, Sam Manuel, longtime labor activist, candidate for the Atlanta City Council president. Mr. Manuel, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for coming on and asking and answering all the questions. I really appreciate it. No, thank you for the opportunity to uh, do so. Take care now. You too. And next week, we will present a little snippet of each of the interviews with the candidates for Atlanta City Council president. This is Closer Look. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's all online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE. 